Hello, and uh, welcome to today's event. For the next hour or so, we'll be discussing transformative approaches to reducing teenage pregnancy. We'll be drawing on lessons learned during an action research project in Sierra Leone, which sought to address social and gender norms drivers of teenage pregnancy. We'll also then consider how this particular approach uh, used might be applied elsewhere. For these insights from Sierra Leone, I particularly want to thank Irish Aid, who's generously funded this program for years now. We have some great speakers today, but before I introduce them, I just wanted to give you some more information on how you can actually interact with the panel. So you'll see in front of you that there's a chat box function, and this is where you're gonna be able to submit your questions or comments. Uh, but when you do so, can I please ask that you put your name and affiliation, and I'll then be able to pick up these questions and feed them back to the panel or a particular speaker during our Q&A and discussion session. Um, and we definitely want to hear from you, so please don't be shy. So let me tell you a little bit more about the people that you'll be hearing from today. Firstly, we have Claire Castillejo. She is a research associate from ODI with extensive experience of research, policy, and programming. In recent years, Claire has been involved in a range of projects that investigate effective ways of supporting gender equality, inclusion, and human rights in fragile and conflict-affected contexts. Her work um, has particularly focused on politically informed and adaptive approaches to programming. Then we have Regina Bashtaki, who is the founder and managing director at the Institute for Development, IFD. IFD has been partnering with ODI to work on adaptive management since 2018. And Regina brings a wealth of experience in adolescent programming. For example, she actually led the development of Sierra Leone's national strategy for the reduction of adolescent pregnancy and child marriage. We then have Tana Fr Tanya Frazier, who is a sexual and reproductive health rights researcher and gender specialist. Tanya has uh, worked for over 15 years leading programs on HIV AIDS, gender-based violence, and S SRHR in the UK, Ghana, and Sierra Leone. She's currently the gender mainstreaming consultant at the National COVID-19 Emergency Response in Sierra Leone. Then, last but not least, we have Fabio Verani. Fabio is a senior technical advisor with the gender justice team at CARE USA. He's worked for over 20 years in designing and implementing programming to promote gender equality. So that means supporting programs to better integrate gender and building capacities to implement gender and rights-based programming, especially in the health sector. So that's our great panel. And uh, before I hand over to Claire, I wanna spend just a few moments explaining what we mean by transformative in the title of this event, and also telling you a little bit more about the Sierra Leone action research that we'll be talking about. So ODI, through the Secure Livelihoods Research Consortium, has been conducting research in Sierra Leone since 2013 on a number of different subjects, for example, nutrition and state health capacity. However, in the aftermath of the Ebola epidemic, we turned our attention to teenage pregnancy because it had become a particular concern for development partners there because there was a perception of an increase in the rate. For context, Sierra Leone has one of the highest rates of teenage pregnancy in the world. About 28% of girls aged between 15 and 19 have already had a child. And our research really focused on the drivers of this issue, as well as how development partners were seeking to support change. What we found is that most programs tended to focus on lack of information um, and access to contraceptives, with perhaps less attention paid to the wider context, especially social and gender norms. 
the emphasis was being put on girls to change their behavior instead of looking at the broader power dynamics and setting. So with uh, Irish Aid in 2018, we developed the idea of a program that would go beyond traditional research and try to turn this evidence into practice. The plan was to work directly with NGOs that were already implementing programs that sought to reduce teenage pregnancy and see if we could support them in addressing these drivers that we knew were important uh, to teenage pregnancy, but were generally underrepresented in current programming. So we set up an action research team in Sierra Leone that spent two years accompanying the partners who were IRC, Save the Children and Concern, and documenting their learning as they went along. So the reason for the label transformative with today's event is twofold. Firstly, the focus on social and gender norms is potentially transformative. These projects tried to focus on a new area of programming in the belief that this would lead to deeper and more sustained impact uh, reduction really on the rate of teenage pregnancy in the communities where they worked. Secondly, the approach we used was also potentially transformative because instead of just producing research and disseminating it amongst implementing partners, we chose an action research model where there was direct collaboration between the researchers and the partners. So this meant regular field visits, reflection sessions, real-time documentation of learning and so on. It was a really challenging approach and the results were mixed and sometimes even surprising, but I'll let you, my uh, colleagues tell you more about it. So without further ado, I'm gonna hand over to Claire. Thank you. Thanks very much, Stephanie. Um, so as Stephanie's described, this action research accompanied three partners as they implemented programs to address the gender norms that drive teenage pregnancy in the communities where they were already working in Sierra Leone. And what I'm gonna do now is present a summary of what we learned from these programs. I'm gonna talk a bit about what we learned about the nature of the gender norms that they discovered, and also what we learned about entry points and strategies for transformative change in this area. So Stephanie's given you a little bit of background, but to give you a little bit more background on the programs. So all three of the partners began with a theory of change that was based on an assumption that discriminatory gender norms play a really critical role in driving teenage pregnancy, and that these gender norms underlie some of the more obvious drivers of the problem, like the prevalence of transactional sex, for example. And when we're talking about gender norms, obviously what we're talking about here is a, is a powerful set of shared beliefs about gender differences and roles, which are kind of enforced with positive and negative sanctions. So all, thought, all the partners decided to focus on bottom-up norm change, which is that they meant with work, they wanted to work with individuals and groups to help them recognize that some norms were problematic and act to change those norms. And all the programs sought to support transformation in gender norms from quite different entry points and working with different constellations of stakeholders in the community. So IRC focused very much on the family setting, SAVE focused on young people and kind of peer norms among young people, and CONCERN focused on wider sets of actors in the community who have the potential to influence teenage pregnancy outcomes. As Stephanie mentioned, all the partners adopted an adaptive approach. And what this meant in practice is that they had inbuilt mechanisms in their programming for capturing ongoing, ongoing learning about the problem of teenage pregnancy in the communities they were working in, and also about the progress of their, of their program implementation. And there were kind of built-in opportunities for reflection on the validity of their theory of change, their assumptions, and also on, on how their strategies were progressing. Now, obviously, the programs weren't running really for long enough to see any kind of meaningful impact in terms of the transformation of gender norms, because we know that's a very long term endeavor. But what they did provide was learning about the nature of gender norms that drive teenage pregnancy and about some promising entry points and strategies to support transformation. So, as I said, that's what I'm going to focus on. So, firstly, 
What did we learn about how gender norms drive teenage pregnancy in these communities? Well, we developed, I mean, the, the, the programs developed a really rich, detailed evidence about this, which I'm afraid I'm only going to be able to summarize briefly here, but hopefully we can come back to. So <clears throat> all the programs found that there's a range of beliefs about and expectations of girls that drive the problem of teenage pregnancy. So for example, the idea that girls should be submissive, girls should meet their own material needs after a certain age, that girls are innately disobedient and kind of willful, and a lot of beliefs about when girls are ready for sex and what makes somebody mature, and what makes somebody an adult, and so on. Now, decision-making power emerged across all the programs as really important for girls to avoid pregnancy. And there was a range of norms and practices that the programs found that curtail girls' ability to make decisions, particularly about sex and contraception. So, for example, that might be that contraception tended to be decided about and paid for by male partners, or that girls who sought contraception were stigmatized. Now, all the programs started from a recognition that addressing teenage pregnancy involves working with a range of actors beyond girls, as Stephanie has already said. And they all involved an exploration of which other actors are important in this regard. And each of the programs identified a variety of ways in which parents, intimate partners, peers, grandparents, community leaders, and so on, shape the context in which girls are becoming pregnant. A number of beliefs and attitudes also came through very clearly about sexual relationships, which were um, contributing to the problem of teenage pregnancy. So the number one among these was just the, the, the extent which girls were expected by their families to engage in transactional sex, although they were also stigmatized for doing so, and this wasn't really talked about. There was also a set of beliefs about what constitutes sexual violence and the fact that only very overt sexual violence is seen as abuse, whereas sexual exploitation and coercion of girls by adult men is considered relatively acceptable and a normal behavior in some of these communities. So the programs generated a number of interesting lessons regarding potential opportunities and strategies to support transformation in gender norms. <coughs> Excuse me. The first lesson was around the opportunities to build on norms that are already in flux. And there's evidence that gender norms in Sierra Leone are changing, and they've been changing since the conflict. And partners found in the communities they, where they were working that there were more progressive attitudes and behaviors about gender that were really sitting alongside the more traditional norms. And partners recognized that these more progressive attitudes were something that they could build on. So, for example, all the partners told us they found the communities had an increased recognition of the problem of teenage pregnancy and a willingness to talk about it. This was something that the communities were already aware was a problem for them. And partners said that this came mostly from kind of a history of NGO activity in these communities, kind of awareness raising work, as well as a broader national conversation about girls' rights and a, and a shifting policy environment around girls' rights. So what we what partners saw was that this existing recognition that there is a problem within these communities provided a really important entry point for discussions about how to make change. And partners also felt that it might make their interventions more sustainable because the community already accepted there was a problem and wanted to seek some action in this regard. Some of the programs also told us that there was a shift underway in terms of the value that was placed on girls, and particularly that parents were more aware of the value of girls' education. They were more keen to keep girls in school. And so again, the programs thought, well, how can we build on this? And for example, IRC, they added graduation ceremonies, public graduation ceremonies to their girls program to kind of publicly reinforce girls achievements and show that girls are, are, are attaining something from participating in activity. So another lesson that came out was around the potential of identifying and working with positive deviants. All the partners identified examples of positive deviant behaviors, which is basically people doing things differently to the norm. And this behavior, this different positive behavior can be supported, made visible to others and so on in order to encourage norm change. 
So some examples of this, some of the partners found there were mothers who, instead of sending the, their pregnant daughter off to live with the father of the baby, the mothers chose to keep their daughter at home and to look after the daughter's baby so that the girl could return to school. And this was really breaking with a very strong existing norm by recognizing that this teenage mother is still a child despite being a, now being a parent and prioritizing her education as a child. They also saw examples of boys, for example, boys wanting to support girls and speaking out saying we want to help solve the problem of teenage pregnancy we reckon we recognize we have a role in this um, some of the partners reported examples of individuals speaking out about gender-based violence and really publicly supporting survivors which again was breaking with a, a very strong norm that this is a kind of private taboo stigmatized subject and critically some of the programs reported they saw some religious leaders adopting a more positive message on girls' rights, which obviously has the potential to have an extremely strong impact in shifting norms and attitudes because of the influence of these leaders in the community. A range of lessons also emerged about the need to make existing harmful norms visible and make their impact visible. Obviously, social norms aren't visible to those operating within them. They just seem to be how the world is. It seems to be a normal way to behave. And in order to shift harmful gender norms, it's really important that people are able to see them, that the norms become visible to people so that people can actually understand their impact and also see what alternatives there might be. So all the partners ran kind of different types of discussion sessions to provoke reflection about the impact of existing norms and existing behaviours. And to give some examples of this, IRC, for example, they ran a series of separate sessions for women, men, boys and girls, where they talked about gender norms and gender roles and the impacts of these. And they fed the concerns that came out of the women's and the girls' session into the men's and the boys' discussions, which enabled men and boys to understand better the perspective girls and also to reflect on how their own behavior was impacting girls and what ways they might want to change that. From these programs we also saw really the importance of providing really concrete opportunities for people to try out new roles and new behaviors because norms can often change when people try out new ways of behaving and these new ways of behaving become visible to others and over time this kind of creates a, a cycle where perceptions change about what is typical and appropriate gender roles and gender behaviors. And in some of the cases, these programs really deliberately went out to create opportunities for new behaviours and new roles that challenge discriminatory gender norms. So, for example, in the Save the Children programme, they were very, Save the Children gave girls very public leadership roles within programme activities in order to shift perceptions. And then we had the, the Save programme staff had feedback from families who were saying, well, they were amazed to see their daughter taking on this public role that they had never thought that, that their daughter or a girl might take. And IRC, they worked very closely with boys to try and encourage boys to model different behavior and be more supportive to girls. For example, encouraging boys to challenge sexual harassment by their peers or be more supportive to their sisters and so on. I think another critical lesson which was perhaps more problematic for these programs was, was about the need to expect and manage resistance and backlash because obviously efforts to change gender norms often face resistance and backlash. They can be viewed as an attack on values and traditions, interests and so on. These particular programs met some limited resistance from communities. Um, in some cases, it was because the program wasn't really seen as being, bringing material benefits to power holders in the community, or because it was focused on girls who just weren't seen as important, and, and community leaders were like, well, what, why do we need this program? You know, this doesn't bring anything for me. In a few more discreet cases, some people felt that the discussion of teenage pregnancy sex was immoral, but this was relatively limited. And generally, this resistance was quite easy to overcome and, 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 and the, the partners had relatively good access to the communities. Perhaps more problematic was that we found 
discriminatory gender norms were shared by programme staff. I mean, this is inevitable because these programme staff were operating in the same social context in which they were working. Um, and the most common example of that was the idea, the idea that a lot of programme staff mentioned, as did community stakeholders, that girls are disobedient, they run after men for material goods and so on. And while it's, this is inevitable and be it to be expected, what one weakness was that these programs didn't really have a strategy to address these staff attitudes. Um, and obviously addressing those kind of attitudes would need to be an integral part of an intervention and kind of ongoing work. I mean, all these staff, you know, have been exposed to gender trainings. And so that kind of illustrates to us the fact that, you know, that this is a, this is a long-term endeavor to try and shift gender norms and it needs to be, and addressing everybody's attitudes, including those of program staff is something that needs to be embedded in the program. I mean, I think of what I've given here is probably a very brief, very succinct summary of what we learned. And as I say, there was a lot of rich detail that I'd really like the chance to get into. I mean, overall, I think the lessons that we drew out from this, from these programs really reflect some of the wider evidence and what we know about what works and entry points in transforming gender norms, but it adds nuance and detail about these specific communities, this, you know, in this specific context in Sierra Leone. But I think we, that's something we can discuss further, and I hope we can reflect on how this fits with the wider evidence. Um, I'm going to stop there now and hand back to you, Stephanie, but I'm very happy to take questions because I realised that was a, a very kind of succinct run through a lot of detail. Thank you, Claire. That was great. You did a very good job of summarising lots of information in uh, a tight 10 minutes. Uh, so I'm going to be asking two of our colleagues um, from the Sierra Leone project, again, to, to speak a bit more about their experience of the sort of how and, and then tying it to, to larger uh, initiatives. So firstly, Tanya, I have a couple of questions for you. So I'll pose the, the first one. It's just, you know, how does this action research project that Claire's just described fit in with larger um, Sierra Leone government or civil society efforts to reduce teenage pregnancy? If you could set the scene for us a little bit in that sense. Okay, thank you, Stephanie. Um, I think it fits in various ways. Um, there have been lots of projects in the past um, that focuses on reducing teenage pregnancy, especially since the Ebola outbreak, when the country saw a huge increase. But since the outbreak, there has been various policy documents developed by the government. So we have the National Strategy for the Reduction of Adolescent Pregnancy and Child Marriage. Um, the Ministry of Gender has developed the Male Engagement Strategy um, in how we use, in how we, we interact with men and boys and use them as allies. And then most recently, the Ministry of um, Basic and Secondary School Education has just developed the Radical Inclusion Strategy, which um, focuses on, on total inclusion um, for, for, for all children, um, whether, they're, whether they're pregnant, whether they're, they're, uh, um, they have um, disabilities, um, and so forth. So um, we also have um, the National Development Plan, which was done in 2019. And there are a couple of clusters there that relate to, one of them is cluster one, which is human capital development, and that looks at um, improving healthy lives and healthy living. And then you have cluster five, which is empowering women and children. And that looks at gender equality, discrimination, and challenges that girls face, including GBV, gender-based violence, and teenage pregnancy. And we're slowly seeing um, a lot of donors, such as Irish Aid, 
obviously, are funding activities that work towards prevention of teenage pregnancy and gender-based violence. But I think this project was this project that we worked on was slightly different, as it focused on gender and social norms. And previously, we focused on service provision. Um, how do we support girls? Um, who who have been pregnant and what are their needs but we've never really taken a, a, a good look to see um, what are the root causes what are the influence you know how does um, gender and social norms influence that um, and there are organizations that are working across the country with thousands of girls such as purposeful they're working through local partners and they're using the life skills manual which, which does a lot of, uh, um, which involves a lot of mentoring and um, teaching girls on how, on, on being empowered. So they, they, they take them through a whole curriculum throughout the year, which covers uh, um, life skills. So there's a lot going on. Um, and, and every year, the more partners joining in and, and people coming with innovative ways on, on how to do the work. Cheers. Thanks. And, you know, you mentioned uh, social and gender norms as, as one of the root causes um, of teenage pregnancy, and that's certainly what our research found. But I, I mm -hmm. wonder whether you can say a little bit more about whether the, the focus by the partners on social and gender norms was the really the right choice, you know, and, and are there other transformational areas or potentially other root causes that are really important for teenage pregnancy in Sierra Leone that might have made up a different focus, for example? Um, I think social and gender norms is a huge area, and I think it was it's an area which probably had been ignored, neglected, um, for want of a better word. And um, and we have um, sixteen or fifteen ethnic groups in the country, and each one has their own norms. So I think it's a huge area which had been completely um, um, ignored. Um, and I think it was the right focus, but I think we do need to continue to continue looking at it and learning about the social and gender norms in, in Sierra Leone. Um, I knew of some before I started the project and I'm learning about others. And I think um, we need to look at the, the country as a whole. We have border countries, so the social and gender norms, which, um, which probably exist in those border districts, which relate to Guinea and Liberia might be different. So I think we do need to continue learning about social and gender norms, but we also need to understand how these they impact the lives of girls in Sierra Leone. Teenage pregnancy doesn't stand on its own. It's linked to other aspects of their lives. So we really need to understand how they impact the lives of, of girls in Sierra Leone. But we also need to take a look and see what are our expectations of these girls. Um, because I think that's another huge area um, that we, we, we need to focus on in the fact that, yes, girls, you know, we do have a high rate of teenage pregnancy in the country, but we never really talk about what do we want for our girls, what are our expectations, how do we support them to achieve those expectations. But probably that's also linked to social and gender norms, um, that we have limited expectations um, of our girls, but we all tend to have huge expectations of our, of, our, of our boys. And then from the learning from that, um, what do we do? Because uh, um, we have all these institutions, we have laws, we have policies, but we need to see how we link what we've learned to implementation, how we can improve our laws and policies, and how we can improve uh, um, our institutions in Sierra Leone. Cheers. Thank you so much, Tanya. That, that's a really great overview of, of sort of how the thematic focus of the project fits into the larger context. And as well, I, I really love your last point that it's not just about making sure you know girls don't get pregnant if 
they don't want to, but but what are their our bigger ambitions and expectations? And um, and I think that that's an interesting um, segue to to the questions that I wanted to ask Regina, which is just that that idea of, of going a bit further into the how of this transformative aspect because i claire spoke about this there's a important part of the project was about reflection so reflecting on whether our assumptions are true but then reflecting on what we want the larger outcomes to look like and so on so um regina i have a couple questions for you that are really uh, trying to go into more detail about the how of doing this action research and what it really meant to accompany partners in trying to foster this change. So the first question is a, is a broad one, but what value um, and challenges do you think this idea of action research really provided? Oh, you're on uh, mute, Regina. Let me start with value, um, Stephanie. Um, it brought a really deeper understanding. Uh, it was very different from the snapshots we get when we do traditional research, where we're coming at discrete points. Uh, here, we were witnessing events as they unfolded. Uh, we structured a witnessing through, for example, planned field visits, uh, reflect and refocus sessions. We developed much deeper insights, but the process of getting this added value uh, wasn't without challenges. It was quite time consuming, so we needed to be ready to put the time in. Uh, as the action research team, we also had to be flexible. We needed to try and overlay what we wanted to do with the partner's plans. And sometimes that was difficult uh, because we were working with more than one partner. But we also had to learn how to tread this very fine line between monitoring and observing. So in the beginning, partners were asking us the questions like, why are you here? Why are you talking to our beneficiaries? It took a while for us to make our role clear and to build trust. We, we also had our own insecurities. We asked ourselves, you know, could we really add value? Were, were, we, were we expert enough? It turns out that what we needed to be was we're not experts in the subject of teenage pregnancy or norm change or even in research methods, but what we needed to be were expert learners. We needed the skills of how to ask questions that generate reflection and learning. Thank you. And, and do you think action research has the potential to, to be more transformational? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely, Stephanie. You know, in this case, we were observers, but we were also influencers. We were influencing through our questions. It was a huge responsibility. I found familiarity with the literature was really helpful. So before every interaction with the partner, or even if our field team, the other action researchers were going out into the field, I would steep myself into the literature of the very specific issue that we were looking at. So I found this helpful to help me formulate questions that could help, you know, the partners to articulate their own theories and their pathways of change. So, for example, you know, the Irish, uh, the IRLC project that Claire mentioned in that project, boys were coming, disrupting boys, uh, girls clubs when they were happening, asking for their own clubs. 
But the boys were never part of the initial research. And, you know, the partner decided to adapt the project and set up boys clubs. So I, and, you know, indeed, as we reflected on this, we were looking at this and thinking, well, isn't this the partner just, you know, giving in meekly uh, to boys who are more empowered and demanding space um, and shifting resources from girls who are more marginalized. So by asking the right questions, I was able to get the implementing agency to justify and to really clearly describe the pathway of change that they saw, because they were able to say to us, no, these boys are actually, you know, they're in relationships with these girls. These uh, girls really respect these boys. Um, they admire them and what the, what the boys think are important to the girls. So in fact, the boys clubs that they were setting up uh, were not there just for the boys. They were actually there to sensitize the boys so they were more supportive to girls. Thanks. Um, I mean, it sounds like there's, there's a big aspect of this of needing to kind of be yeah, a critical friend, essentially. And how did you balance your role and the team's role as outside researchers and then this critical friend, but then also needing to, to provide continuous support to the partners? That's, that's a lot of hats to wear. How did you balance that? Oh, Regina, I'm afraid you're on mute again. <laughs> Thanks. So, I was very worried about this, that at the start. Can you hear me, Stephanie? Yeah, all good. Can you hear me? I'm sorry about that. My line dropped a little bit there. You know, Stephanie was saying, I was very worried about that at the start. You know, I, I didn't want to offend. I, I wanted to be kind without being patronizing. Uh, but I learned a lot in this, uh, from that experience. I learned essentially that what mattered was my intention. Um, my intention was to see that we could all work together, we could use the evidence to make the best decisions. So I think for me, this came back to asking questions. But technically, the action research had the questions it was seeking to answer. So I had that to guide me. And as I mentioned before, I also had the literature to guide me about what questions to ask. So I would say combining good intent and using technical guides uh, were the main ways that I tried to balance this role. I think in the end, one partner reflected to me that within their team, when they were trying to solve a problem, they would say, what would Regina ask? And for me, that was a very powerful validation of the progress we had made. Thank you so much, Regina. That gives us uh, a lot more insight into how we actually did this. And we're gonna switch tack slightly now to discuss really the broader learning in terms of, for example, what Tanya and Claire spoke about around social and gender norms, but also this approach that we've taken that uh, Regina's just spoken about, how this, how this, all this knowledge around um, shifting social and gender norms uh, fits into perhaps other contexts outside of Sierra Leone. So I'm gonna ask Fabio now to come in and bring in the perspective of a practitioner working on norm change across a variety of contexts. And perhaps uh, Fabio, you can give us a bit more information about potential entry points and challenges. So over to you, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'll try to try to go over just some some quick points I've been thinking through that are 
key to gender transformative programming. Um, one, one issue I think that that um, that is always important is to make sure that our gender norms program, our gender programming, uh, is working on multiple levels. That we recognize that change only happens when we're working at different parts of society, different levels of society at the same time, and that includes working at the agency, the individual attitudes and skills, the relationship level, how do couples, uh, potential couples, dating couples, married couples, uh, families, uh, how do they understand these issues and work through them at a personal level, which is where all of this happens, and the structural level, how, how are all these um, gender inequities that we're talking about reflected re uh, in, in the laws and policies around this? And this is all important because in regards to gender, these um, a lot of times what we're talking about in terms of attitudes and beliefs doesn't diverge tons from the gender norms that are around them. So we also have to think about these structures and how are they reflecting this and how do we change these and how do we uh, go through a process that does that. Um, and gender transformative approaches, right? Those that are purposefully looking to challenge and change inequality versus just integrating gender are a key way to do this by working at these multiple levels. Um, there was some mention in the paper about um, uh, transactional sex and transactionality of relationships within, kind of, especially within adolescent girls um, as a kind of a key issue. And I think an important point to that for programming at that level is also thinking about how do we reflect on positive sexuality, on what is a good, a positive, healthy sexual relationship, right? And using that as a counterpoint to trans transactionality, as well as a counterpoint to power inequality and how that works itself out in relationships. So, and I think this positive focus is one thing that generally people can agree with. Uh, generally that there's especially power, positive focus on sexual relationships is not something that's discussed or as often. Um, and it also points, it points out very clearly how negative gender norms can work in opposition to what people want, what we want, right? Um, the, there's a mention about masculinity, and I think the masculine norms around power and control is always something key to keep in mind, right? Uh, and that there is privilege, and privilege is a relative thing, right? There is privilege uh, between the boys and girls. There's privilege by definite privilege and power by uh, for the younger men compared to girls, and there's privilege and power in comparison to class and, and education. Um, so, um, so keeping that in mind when we're working with with men and boys and thinking that how do these processes make them allow them to 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 reflect and and make changes, and keep in mind that there's a significant part of masculine norms that also include risk taking and 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 kind of norms around fatherhood, which are all kind of tied to this to to this issue, right? In some contexts, right, um, young men don't even think of fatherhood as as you know as part of their identity of who they are, and that also makes it much easier for them to 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 not use condoms or to not use um, uh, uh, family planning. Um, intersectionality is a thing that's is a is a concept which is very key to feminism. Is one to keep in mind within all of this programming, keeping in mind that there are multiple oppressions working at the same time. There is class and poverty, which is a very key oppression. There is sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, there's race, ethnicity, there's age. There are many oppressions happening together. And it's important to keep those in, under, and, and integrate those as you're doing your programming. Um, in part because also if if you don't do that, then I think you, you end up getting some backlash, uh, a, a type of backlash, which you could avoid. Uh, from communities, right? Which is that you're not really taking into account the multiple different oppressions that they're facing. Um, 
we the paper mentioned staff expertise, and I think this is such a huge issue that we tend to to gloss over. But that we we need to keep in mind if we are saying that these gender inequitable norms are so widespread and they're so um, they, they are so uh, and harmful. That means that that they're widespread. That means that our staff uh, hold on to them to different extents, and I also think very importantly means that our staff in the global north hold on to them to to very to to different extents. Um, so we need to make sure that when we're looking through this program, we don't assume that our staff, just because they work in our organization, are immune to these norms. We need to ensure that we're providing space for staff to to a training space for staff to practice and get and get prepared, but especially for frontline staff that we give them the full capacity and support to be able to do this programming, right? That includes when you're training uh, frontline staff, especially curriculum-based uh, interventions, we allow them to see the intervention being modeled. We allow them to reflect on the exact same issues they're gonna be working with. We allow them to practice and teach back and we allow, allow them to practice post-training if possible. This is important because poorly trained facilitators can do often a lot of harm, right? They can reinforce inequity because they're in situations where they're, and by facilitators, I mean facilitators of kind of, you know, workshop uh, processes. And they can inadvertently or sometimes advertently uh, reinforce uh, harmful norms and beliefs. Uh, they, they will get challenged and, and they will get challenged within that space and they need to know how to respond. And if they can't respond honestly, and personally, uh, then they're not going to be believable, and, the, and things, and they will end up really supporting the opposite argument. Um, that doesn't mean they need to be perfect. It just means that they need to reflect that they are going through the same difficult changes and be able to appreciate the challenges and difficulties that the participants in their work are going through. Right, and that can only happen if they themselves are going to have personally reflected and are them, themselves making kind of these steps, this very complex and long process of steps that they're going to be taking in their lives, right? Uh, and which we're asking, and it's very unfair, I think, also keep in mind, in the, especially in this circumstance for us or you know, staff to ask participants to make changes we ourselves are not willing to make, right? Um, and then finally, I'm just gonna say that the shifting gender norms in society really requires going beyond some of the groups that, especially norms, right? It requires going beyond some of the groups that we traditionally focus on. Um, and by that, I mean like a lot of our programming, because it's focused on the vulnerable, focus on the poor uh, or those who are most poor in, in different societies, but those people do not, develop media they they do not they do not own corporations they uh they are they are not directly influencing policies as maybe those who are in the elites and, and those who own corporations do um even those who own corporations that are multinational corporations so um keeping in mind that if we are talking about social norms right gender norms that that go that pervade throughout society to change those also implies stepping away from just working uh, with those who are at the lowest income, right? And keeping in mind that we need to also seek change in a broader sense, right? Which is which is not what we always do, uh, or not what we're always funded to do. Um, and then I think key tied to that, or I think very key to that, is working with local women's rights movements and organizations, understanding that if we are talking about this long social society-wide process of change, that needs to be partnered with, aligned with, and fundamentally work with the social movements in countries that are trying to, they're seeking those same goals, right? And and who often have a hu humongous difficulties and challenges getting uh, so, uh, funding to do what they do. Um, so I think those are the key points that I have. Thank you so much, Fabio. And um, 
that was really interesting. And actually, we've had a, a couple questions already on this particular point. So um, just for, for everyone watching, uh, I'll start taking now some of your questions from the chat box, uh, but do, do keep sending them in because I'm keeping an eye on it. So firstly, we have a question from Bernadette Crawford, who's an equality advisor at Concern Worldwide, which I'll remind you is one of the partners in the Sierra Leone project. And the question is specifically for Claire, but I do want to open it up uh, to all of our panelists. And the question is, what would you recommend to organizations in terms of a strategy for engaging staff in a process of challenging gender attitudes and practices? And um, she states that any ideas of what's required to, to do it well would be great. So I'll ask Claire to go first, but I, um, I just wanna as well just open it up. Fabio, you've talked about this a little bit already in your, in your remarks, but perhaps Tanya and Regina, you can even speak about uh, how you handled this as part of the action research team and whether this was uh, an activity in the project. So Claire, over to you first. Thanks. And yeah, I mean, I think I may be at risk of repeating some of the points that Fabio's already made, but I, in terms of, of how this can be addressed, I mean, I think what, one of the things that I said is, you know, what we saw is that there had been some training, but it was relatively discreet, but clearly this needs to be an ongoing process with staff. Um, it needs to be something that's embedded in the program, right, you know, right from the outset or in, in, indeed before the program begins, where staff are given the opportunity to, to kind of talk about the norms that they're going to be working on and reflect on those, not just in terms of what they mean for their work, but also reflect on those at a personal level. And I think that what we sometimes see in in, in these types of settings is that, uh, you know, people will receive a gender training, which is about how you go out and talk about girls' rights or you talk about these issues in the in outside in the communities where you're working but there's not that focus also on on reflecting on your own beliefs and attitudes and how things work in your community and in your you know in in your personal life in a sense and it is inevitably quite personal so i would say that 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 is something that you can build in throughout the life of the program i mean I th when i think about these particular programs and about the action research that accompanied them and reflecting back i think a lesson maybe for us was that this could we had these the way it was structured is we had like um quarterly r and r sessions we've called them where basically the program staff would come together to reflect on what was working what wasn't working what they were learning and it seems to me that those sessions could have perhaps usefully also unpicked a little bit more some of these issues around how staff's own attitudes about the, the social and gender norms that they were working on and have been a space for people to reflect about reflect on their own attitudes and, and kind of support them to as fabio said to kind of practice and 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 you know yeah practice how, how they can engage on these issues in the community um yeah i'm perhaps yeah. Hand over to others if they want to say something. Yeah, thanks. And Tanya, uh, I think you, you disconnected, but just to, to refresh the question is whether there are any recommendations for organizations in terms of a strategy for engaging staff on a process of challenging uh, gender attitudes and practices. I don't know, Tanya, if you came across this in supporting this particular program or if you have uh, some larger recommendations on the matter. Um, I think the partner I supported, um, because of the, the nature of the organization and where they work, a, some of, a lot of the staff were actually um, very well informed. But um, because we worked with youth researchers, um, but you could actually see the, how entrenched the social and gender norms were, even within the youth researchers, by their reactions when they were posing some questions and, 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 all, you know, and their behavior and the... And the and so forth. Um, and even though that was covered as part of their training, 
but it, it's very entrenched. Um, I think it has to be, what I recommend, I've seen in one or two other organizations do is they do specific sessions with their staff in talking about um, issues such as gender equality, how it works, how it relates to the program or the work that they're doing and how it can impact their work, um, but also their personal lives. Um, because as I keep saying, it is quite entrenched and these questions and these issues should actually be discussed out in the open. Um, I worked for an organization before who used to do that every Friday in the afternoons for a couple of hours over lunch. So it wasn't, it wasn't seen as a really heavy kind of a session, but um, these discussions uh, um, were brought out in the open. People managed, you know, people talked about their personal experiences depending on where they came from, how they grew up, and, and even that the work they do and how their, their families perceive the work that they're doing. I've met people who've hidden who, who, who don't actually inform their, their, their family members about the work they're doing because of the nature of the work. And they're not quite sure how their families will react. So I think these issues can be brought out in the open within the, the organizations that um, the staff work. And, and, and they can also learn and pick up ideas on how um, they can also tackle it in their, in their personal, uh, personal environment. Great, thank you. Um, Regina, Fabio, do you have any further thoughts on this particular subject before I go over to the next question? Just a quick uh, thought. To me, uh, Stephanie, what was important always is to have this environment in the organization where people can speak without fear of too much judgment so that you have this thing where you're challenging each other all the time um, and you know it, it's a win when you grow and when you shift. I'll just add one thing. I think uh, uh, CARE does does do uh, gender trainings, gender equity, diversity trainings for all its staff. So I do think training of all staff is kind of a basic piece to that. I would also always keep in mind that that's different uh, or that's, that's only a, a first step that's different from the training of staff who are actually engaging in the programming, the frontline staff, right? So, uh, so that's another layer, right? But um, I do think that that's, that's one piece to, to support that, that reflection. Thanks. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting hearing everyone talk about this because obviously we've we have this label of transformative under this particular discussion. And and one thing that we perhaps didn't explicitly think about going into this project in Sierra Leone is that it's not just transformative in terms of our focus on norms, in terms of how we've tried to do it, being adaptive, but it's also potentially transformative in terms of the relationships between staff, the power dynamics and so on. And even, and even ourselves, I think we all felt that we would really learn things about ourselves um, during this project. So that's been great. Um, I'm gonna turn over to the next question, which, which is from uh, Shrishti from, who is an SRHR advisor at Lillian Foundation. And um, the question is, how do you overcome resistance and backlash within the community? And, um, and there was another question similarly related to staff attitudes that harm programming, but I think we've tackled that. So yeah, let's go back to this idea of, of resistance and backlash from the community. I don't know if um, Claire, you initially spoke about it yourself. So perhaps if you can provide some more detail as to when we've experienced that in Sierra Leone or in some of your other work, and then I'll hand over to Fabio to talk about his experience at, at, at CARE, thanks. Yeah, so this is something that came out from all three of the programs, but I think we probably had more information about what happened both with, with IRC and CONCERN programming, which is really that, I mean, 
What we didn't see was a massive resistance about, you know, don't come into the community talking about these issues. We don't want this program. That wasn't there. And as I said, you know, that the, the partners felt that that was because there was already some understanding of the problem. There was a kind of a, a context in which, you know, because of previous NGO work, because of kind of the wider national conversation, people recognize that this is an issue that, you know, is important. But having said that, there was resistance. It was really not so much about the content of the program, but about the fact that the program didn't bring any benefits for those, for power holders in the community. So particularly, you know, the I mean, IRC, particularly the, the staff talked about how it didn't bring any, you know, particular benefits for, for male power holders in the community is kind of what's in it for me and, and why are you investing this its energy on, on girls when, you know, this doesn't bring anything for us kind of thing. And so what I understood, and perhaps Regina and, and Tanya can talk to this a bit more, but what I understood that the IRC staff really did was to make the case with power holders in the community why working on girls' rights and why addressing teenage pregnancy was important for the whole community. And that this wasn't just about bringing something for girls, which no one else was going to benefit from, but in fact, the whole community will benefit from girls who are able to stay in school, girls who don't get pregnant too young, and so on. So I think it was really making the case. And that seemed to be the main form of resistance. But I mean, I, yeah, I would maybe hand over to Georgina and Tanya, who might have more details on the specifics of the different programs. Sure, go ahead, Regina, Tanya, if you want to jump in. Um, I'll, I'll jump in quickly. Uh, I think also what we found was that it was important to try and understand what the reasons for the resistance. So I'll give you the example of um, just pick up from what Claire has just said about kind of communities. Um, you know, we assume straight away it's about benefits, and most of the time it was. But let's take the example of the boys that I talked about. So we were just thinking, okay, well, the boys just want their own clubs because the girls wanted their own clubs. When we started looking at that uh, a bit more deeply, we began to understand that there was a lot more at play. And I think when you try to respond, the, the important thing is to try and make sure that you're dealing with what the fear is. So, you know, is the fear that, um, okay, I'm not going to get anything, that's the basic thing. But is it also that, you know, if my uh, wife or girlfriend is empowered, then I would not be able to treat them in the way that I'm doing now? So those are the kinds of things that I found useful um, when we were trying to think about anything that seemed like a backlash. Although I must say for this project, um, you know, we, we didn't see uh, so much backlash as, as Claire's already said. Um, we, we didn't see um, significant backlash, but I think one of the observations um, made um, was that parents, um, parents felt that their children belonged to them. So they could ask them to do anything, send them anywhere, whether it's to a, a pub, a bar, to go and buy cigarettes. And um, and so forth. And um, even though they're aware that um, some of them were aware that um, there might be, it wasn't appropriate or it was against the law. But we, I realized that a lot of a lot of parents just think, well, this is my child, and I can do whatever I want to do with that child. I can tell my child to go and buy, go to a bar, go here, go there, and so forth. Um, so one of the backlash we had, a significant one, which was more from the community, was linked to, because we started doing the research, the actual research was started at the time when COVID 
had been identified and school closures. And there was backlash from the one specific community because um, of lack of information or um, incorrect information about COVID. And they thought that the researchers, the youth researchers were there related to COVID as opposed to um, the project uh, um, we were working on. So that also uh, um, informs us that, you know, before you go into a, a community, you need to do a lot of groundwork in sensitizing the community, letting them understand what we're doing, um, and giving them a much, as much information as possible so they do feel comfortable and they don't feel like they're being uh, um, um, intruded um, upon by a group of, a group of strangers. Thanks. Uh, Fabio, have you, have you come across much um, backlash and, and resistance when, when working on social and gender norms? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, um, if you're approaching this, you're approaching programming and saying that there is this pervasive inequality based around gender, that it is everywhere at every level of society and within the structures we see, the schools, the policies, the government around us, if it's everywhere, um, if it if it determines and and uh, uh, if it is a key determinant to all these things like teen pregnancy and use of contraception, all these things that we're talking about, if it is that pervasive, and then if you are changing it, right? If you're in fact actually challenging and changing it, you have to expect pushback, right? You have to expect pushback from especially for those in privilege, those who have something to lose in the more equitable system or a more equitable world, right? Um, so you have to expect uh, pushback and I think you have to plan for it. And if you don't have any pushback at all, if everyone's fully just, oh, this is wonderful, then there, then there's probably something wrong either with the approach or the original analysis, right? Because those two two things don't mesh anymore, right? You're talking about again something that is personal that governs people's relationships between each other. It governs hierarchies within communities. It governs a lot of things. Um, so you should plan for and expect that there will be pushback, um, and that the, even when you have community-based methods, I think that there you know there's mention of EMAP from IRC. There's mention of SASA, which is from phrasing voices. There's someone mentioned Saki Gender Justice in the chat. All of those use curriculum-based methods that gather people in workshops. And even in those workshops, you always expect pushback, right? There is pushback. People challenge you. People say, why should I treat girls this way? Why, you know, you know, the relationships that you're talking about don't exist, right? Um, so I think there's, uh, there's always going to be pushback and you should expect pushback to exist, right? Um, and, and that you have to always plan for that and think of how do you overcome that. Thank you. Um, we have a, a comment and then a, a question from, from Lisa Denny. So the comment, I think I'll read out because it's, um, it's pretty interesting on staff training that we've just discussed. And it's that um, Marie Stopes has a nice approach in Sierra Leone where they actually train their drivers in how to facilitate discussions with men about contraceptives, recognizing that actually the drivers spend a lot of time in the communities, but also talking to male staff uh, while, while the staff are in the car and running consultations and programs. Um, so Lisa said she's not really sure uh, how they got around of the, um, of the issue of overcoming their biases, but it's nice recognition that staff at all levels should really be involved in, um, in challenging gender norms. 
in terms of the question, it's specifically for Regina and Tanya, and um, it's around the point of working together at all levels to address uh, gender norms. So community level, individual attitudes, but also larger, wider structures and laws and policies. And the question is, in Sierra Leone now, do efforts to address gender norms work adequately across all these levels? And, and where do we see the response being the strongest and where are there perhaps gaps? Um, so I will perhaps hand over to Tanya first on that question and then Regina and if Claire and Fabio, if you have any further points you want to make, uh, feel free. Thanks. Um, thanks, Stephanie. Um, I think that um, it is important to address gender norms across various levels. Um, I think it's probably the response is probably strongest at the youth level, working with young people. Um, they're, you know, open, they understand a lot of the issues, and they're willing to learn. I think when you get higher up the chain, um, whether it's people with certain amounts of power, um, they're more reluctant um, to let go because it means for a lot of people, people think it's, it's relinquishing power control that they have. So, for example, we have our, you know, you have some uh, institutions, political institutions and other um, social institutions, and, and it's much more difficult. And there's a level of reluctance. This is what we're used to. Um, this is our culture. You want to change our traditions and our culture. But also it means that, you know, it probably means that they do have to let go of some of the, the power that they've held for so long. Um, and also, I think for organizations like Mary Stopes, as you mentioned, um, because of um, the space that they work in, you do need everybody to be on board. Um, you do need to 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 um, educate or raise awareness among entire levels of your staff. And they do a lot of work out in community in the outreach, actually more than more than in the in their static sites. So I think it's very very important um, that an organization such as that. Um, does need uh, um, all levels uh, um, to be on board. Thank you. Regina, any thoughts? Uh, let me just add that I think I saw a really good example with IRC in Sierra Leone, where they really were thinking about coalition building. So when you talked to IRC, um, for example, at the district level, you will see that they were talking to other partners, other other NGOs who are working in that space and coming together and building coalitions to work that way. And they were working with traditional leaders. Then they, um, I also saw them coming up to the national level where, for instance, they were even working with government to help, you know, uh, develop like our education materials and plants. And they were using all the information that came right from the district, from the grassroots, and taking that right to the top. And I thought that was a really good example of how you can work across the levels. Thank you. Um, Fabio, Claire, do you have any further uh, thoughts on this particular question? Uh, and if not, I'll take us to our uh, wrapping up comments. 
No, everyone looks okay. I, so I, I have okay, one quick cheers, one. Fabio, thank you. Um, just just on this piece about um, uh, shifting structures, laws, policies, definitely uh, one thing I do think is key is working through again, as I mentioned, local women's movements. I don't think INGOs should ever be the ones to 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 try to uh, influence policies they themselves don't don't live under, right? And and I think also that if you want to, policies are, are two things, right? There one is the, those policies actually exi existing on the books, but the other is them being enforced, right? And how they're implemented. And, and it is local movements that are the ones that are able to exert social pressure to on governments to properly implement laws and INGOs don't really have that same space to play. And they shouldn't, again, I think they, they really should be playing a role that's that is supportive to local movements that is supportive to local structures to 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 make those changes um, and I think that's one key piece to this issue about structures laws policies and how to how does how do those change can I just add another quick point on this Stephanie which is just to kind of put this in context in terms of the Sierra Leone context because I think I mean what these partners the, the parts of their programs that we've were following were very clearly and deliberately focused on kind of bottom-up norm change. But I think that it's it's interesting to see the broader context in Sierra Leone where there there during the time of this pro these programs there was kind of change and shift happening at multiple levels around these issues in the kind of post-Ebola context there was more focus at national policy level on teenage pregnancy there was a shifting policy environment and so on so i think i mean our research didn't look at that but i think it would be very interesting if we go back to do it again to take this broader a broader lens and understand how this bottom-up work fitted into these other shifts that were taking place in Carolina at that moment Thanks. Um, that's that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm glad uh, you can't end any research event without saying if we had more research, we would also look at X, Y, Z. Um, but before we end today's event, I, I do want to give a chance to, to all of you, our panelists, for some final remarks. And I'm going to ask you to keep it um, quite short, so sort of a minute or two maximum. But um, the question I'm going to ask is fairly broad. I'm sure all of you, when you were planning for today's events, thinking through your speaking points, you might have thought in the back of your head that there would be certain questions on a particular subject. So my question to you is, was there a particular question or a particular subject that was not addressed today, but that you think is really important? You know, the question that wasn't asked, but you had a perfect answer for. So what is that? I mean, what is really um, something key that you feel our audience should really take away from today's event that we've not yet discussed. And if you can give me a quick snapshot summary of what that is and what your answer is. Uh, I'm going to start with Fabio. Thank you. Um, that's a difficult question. I don't know if I, if, if, uh, if that, if I can think of an exact example, I don't think we, we didn't really discuss, but I think it's important to keep in mind that there is a huge, not huge, there's a significant amount of evidence, uh, currently about fame, about what works to promote gender transformative change. Um, so there are many projects that have been, that have, uh, significant, uh, large studies around them. There was the What Works initiative to prevent violence against women and girls in the uh, run run by former DFID. Uh, there's going to be a What Works too sometime soon. Um, there is uh, there is a lot of information uh, out there, and that we should always make sure that when we are uh, structuring these types of programs, that we do two things. I think one is look through and 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 make sure we are we 
fully understand what works and how to make that happen in that context or program. Um, and how and and then secondly, as I kind of mentioned before, how do we partner with local organizations that are already doing this work and support that capacity uh, strengthening and change at that level? Um, so I think those are two key points that that we didn't discuss much, but I think is a ongoing discussion. Thank you, Fabio. So using evidence about what works, I love it. That is very concise. Uh, Tanya, over to you. Um, I think. Um, we, we didn't talk about adaptive management, which added a different dynamics <laughs> to the work that we were doing, um, because that was a new methodology for everyone, um, including us. Um, and also, you know, whether it's, it's, it works, whether it doesn't work, whether, you know, whether it works better for teenage pregnancy projects or whether it doesn't, and whether it's appropriate for, for all the types of um, um, projects. But, um, I think the other thing was also about, um, which I think um, we didn't cover, although, um, was also about um, partnership working, whether it's between us, um, the action researchers, the partner organizations, then you have the donor organizations, and, um, and the dynamics among that, because um, it was um, an interesting start when we started um, because um, we represented ODI to a certain extent, but there's also the donor, there's also the partner organizations, the, the senior management team, and then you have the implementing staff who we interacted with with most of the time. And it's relationship building, it's partnership building, and that takes time. So if you're starting a project like this anew and um, with adaptive management thrown in action research, there's lots of new things going on, plus the relationship dynamic among the various um, entity gives it a different flavor. Thanks, Tanya. That's that's so true. And um, and I completely agree that, you know, really transformation and change requires trust and partnership. And uh, that's that's a really key point to bring up um, at the end here. Regina, same question uh, over to you. Any any particular thoughts on something that you feel our audience or your fellow panelists should really know about before we end? Apologies if I repeat some of the points because I didn't hear all of them. My internet kept dropping off. But I think um, for me, what stands out is that action research is a really useful tool, but don't estimate the time that it requires. Um, I think I heard uh, Tanya talk about relationships. You definitely need to invest time in building those relationships. I think it's really important to know the evidence um, and you really to keep learning and to celebrate shifts. Thanks. Thanks. Claire? Thanks. Yeah, a couple of things that I think we could have talked about more is, is one about the, and we have touched on this a bit, about the importance of building on what was already there, which came out very strongly from, from our findings. And also Fabio talked about this a bit in terms of building on and supporting women's movements and that are already in place in the context where we're working. And likewise, the, the, the idea of kind of building on changes that are already underway and recognizing those and recognizing those opportunities. Um, so I think that that's something that we could have we could have talked about a little bit more in detail. And the other thing I think was around kind of, and again, we've touched on it, but a bit of an interest to go into more detail around the, the focus on positive messaging, because 
Um, you know, a lot of these programs, perhaps we didn't have time to kind of explain all of this, but they were focused on really about kind of supporting positive parenting, positive relationships and so on. And then we know that it's much easier to shift norms by encouraging people to adopt a new, more positive norm than trying to break down a negative norm. So I think it might have been useful to, for us to think a bit more about the way in which kind of those positive norm shifts were supported by partners and also the wider evidence about what works in that area. Thank you, Claire. And uh, I'm actually quite happy that that all four of you have have somewhat similar messaging here around, you know, transforming information to action and focusing on the relationships between people. And I think that that is a great uh, point to be our final one. So with that, we've actually arrived at the end of today's session. And I want to thank all of you, our panelists, for your insightful remarks, but also for everyone who's been watching and the participants who ask questions and engage with our content today. So you'll be able to see a recording of today's event up on the ODI website shortly, which you can access and share. And I definitely encourage you to, um, to check out any related reports and, uh, and some of the work that all of our panelists uh, have done and are still doing on this subject. So I really hope that today's event has helped increase your understanding of what a potentially transformative approach looks like in practice and that you'll be able to make use of some of the information and recommendations that we've talked about. Thank you again, and I wish you a good day.